Section 11 of Chapter 19 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 19, Section 11. Swift, many years later, confessed some part of what he felt when he found himself on his way to court. His spirit had been bowed down, and might seem to have been broken, by calamities and humiliations. The language which he was in the habit of holding to his patron, as far as we can judge from the specimens which still remain, was that of a lackey, or rather of a beggar. A sharp word, or a cold look, of the master, sufficed to make the servant miserable during several days. But this tameness was merely the tameness with which a tiger, caught, caged, and starved, submits to the keeper who brings him food. The humble menial was at heart the haughtiest, the most aspiring, the most vindictive, the most despotic of men, and now at length a great a boundless prospect was opening before him. To William he was already slightly known. At Moor Park the king had sometimes, when his host was confined by gout to an easy-chair, been attended by the secretary about the grounds. His Majesty had condescended to teach his companion the Dutch way of cutting and eating asparagus, and had graciously asked whether Mr. Swift would like to have a captain's commission in a cavalry regiment. But now, for the first time, the young man was to stand in the royal presence as a counsellor. He was admitted to the closet, delivered a letter from Temple, and explained and enforced the arguments which that letter contained, concisely, but doubtless with clearness and ability. There was, he said, no reason to think that short parliaments would be more disposed than long parliaments to encroach on the just prerogatives of the crown. In fact, the parliament which had in the preceding generation waged war against a king, led him captive, sent him to the prison, to the bar, to the scaffold, was known in our annals as emphatically the long parliament. Never would such disasters have befallen the monarchy but for the fatal flaw which secured that assembly from dissolution. There was, it must be owned, a flaw in this reasoning which a man less shrewd than William might easily detect. That one restriction of the royal prerogative had been mischievous did not prove that another restriction would be salutary. It by no means followed because one sovereign had been ruined by being unable to get rid of a hostile parliament, that another sovereign might not be ruined by being forced to part with a friendly parliament. To the great mortification of the ambassador, his arguments failed to shake the king's resolution. On the 14th of March, the commons were summoned to the upper house. The title of the triennial bill was read, and it was announced after the ancient form 
that the king and queen would take the matter into their consideration. The Parliament was then prorogued. Soon after the prorogation, William set out for the continent. It was necessary that, before his departure, he should make some important changes. He was resolved not to discard Nottingham, on whose integrity, a virtue rare among English statesmen, he placed a well-founded reliance. Yet if Nottingham remained Secretary of State, it was impossible to employ Russell at sea. Russell, though much mortified, was induced to accept a lucrative post in the household and two naval officers of great note in their profession, Killigrew and Delaval, were placed at the Board of Admiralty and entrusted with the command of the Channel Fleet. These arrangements caused much murmuring among the Whigs, for Killigrew and Delaval were certainly Tories, and were by many suspected of being Jacobites. But other promotions which took place at the same time proved that the king wished to bear himself evenly between the hostile factions. Nottingham had, during a year, been the sole Secretary of State. He was now joined with a colleague in whose society he must have felt himself very ill at ease, John Trenchard. Trenchard belonged to the extreme section of the Whig party. He was a Taunton man, animated by that spirit which had, during two generations, peculiarly distinguished Taunton. He had, in the days of Pope burnings and of Protestant flails, been one of the renowned Green Ribbond Club. He had been an active member of several stormy parliaments. He had brought in the first exclusion bill. He had been deeply concerned in the plots formed by the chiefs of the opposition. He had fled to the continent. He had been long an exile, and he had been accepted by name from the general pardon of 1686. Though his life had been passed in turmoil, his temper was naturally calm. But he was closely connected with a set of men whose passions were far fiercer than his own. He had married the sister of Hugh Speak, one of the falsest and most malignant of the libellers who brought disgrace on the cause of constitutional freedom. Aaron Smith, the solicitor of the Treasury, a man in whom the fanatic and the pettifogger were strangely united, possessed too much influence over the new secretary, with whom he had, ten years before, discussed plans of rebellion at the Rose. Why Trenchard was selected in preference to many men of higher rank and greater ability for a post of the first dignity and importance, it is difficult to say. It seems, however, though he bore the title and drew the salary of Secretary of State, he was not trusted with any of the graver secrets of State, and that he was little more than a superintendent of police, charged to look after the printers of unlicensed books, the pastors of non-juring congregations, and the haunters of treason taverns. Another Whig of far higher character was called at the same time to a far higher place in the administration. 
the great seal had now been four years in commission since maynard's retirement the constitution of the court of chancery had commanded little respect trevor who was the first commissioner wanted neither parts nor learning but his integrity was with good reason suspected and the duties which as speaker of the house of commons he had to perform during four or five months in the busiest part of every year made it impossible for him to be an efficient judge in equity every suitor complained that he had to wait a most unreasonable time for a judgment and that when at length a judgment had been pronounced it was very likely to be reversed on appeal meanwhile there was no efficient minister of justice no great functionary to whom it especially belonged to advise the king touching the appointment of judges of counsel for the crown of justices of the peace it was known that william was sensible of the inconvenience of this state of things and during several months there had been flying rumours that a lord keeper or lord chancellor would soon be appointed the name most frequently mentioned was that of nottingham but the same reasons which had prevented him from accepting the great seal in sixteen eighty nine had since that year rather gained than lost strength william at length fixed his choice on somers somers was only in his forty-second year and five years had not elapsed since on the great day of the trial of the bishops his powers had first been made known to the world from that time his fame had been steadily and rapidly rising neither in forensic nor in parliamentary eloquence had he any superior the consistency of his public conduct had gained for him the entire confidence of the whigs and the urbanity of his manners had conciliated the tories it was not without great reluctance that he consented to quit an assembly over which he exercised an immense influence for an assembly where it would be necessary for him to sit in silence he had been but a short time in great practice his savings were small not having the means of supporting a hereditary title he must if he accepted the high dignity which was offered to him preside during some years in the upper house without taking part in the debates the opinion of others however was that he would be more useful as head of the law than as head of the whig party in the commons he was sent for to kensington and called into the council chamber carmarthen spoke in the name of the king sir john he said it is necessary for the public service that you should take this charge upon you and i have it in command from his majesty to say that he can admit of no excuse somers submitted the seal was delivered to him with a patent which entitled him to a pension of two thousand a year from the day on which he should quit his office and he was immediately sworn in a privy councillor and lord keeper the gazette which announced these changes in the administration announced also the king's departure he set out for holland on the twenty fourth of march he left orders that the estates of scotland should 
after a recess of more than two years and a half, be again called together. Hamilton, who had lived many months in retirement, had since the fall of Melville been reconciled to the court, and now consented to quit his retreat, and to occupy Holyrood House as Lord High Commissioner. It was necessary that one of the Secretaries of State for Scotland should be in attendance on the King. The Master of Stair had therefore gone to the Continent. His colleague, Johnston, was chief manager for the Crown at Edinburgh, and was charged to correspond regularly with Carstairs, who never quitted William. It might naturally have been expected that the session would be turbulent. The Parliament was that very Parliament which had, in 1689, passed, by overwhelming majorities, all the most violent resolutions which Montgomery and his club could frame, which had refused supplies, which had proscribed the ministers of the crown, which had closed the courts of justice, which had seemed bent on turning Scotland into an oligarchical republic. In 1690 the estates had been in a better temper, yet even in 1690 they had, when the ecclesiastical polity of the realm was under consideration, paid little deference to what was well known to be the royal wish. They had abolished patronage. They had sanctioned the rabbling of the episcopal clergy. They had refused to pass a toleration act. It seemed likely that they would still be found unmanageable when questions touching religion came before them, and such questions it was unfortunately necessary to bring forward. William had, during the recess, attempted to persuade the General Assembly of the Church to receive into communion such of the old curates as should subscribe the Confession of Faith and should submit to the government of synods. But the attempt had failed, and the assembly had consequently been dissolved by the Lord Commissioner. Unhappily, the act which established the Presbyterian polity had not defined the extent of the power which was to be exercised by the sovereign over the spiritual courts. No sooner, therefore, had the dissolution been announced than the moderator requested permission to speak. He was told that he was now merely a private person. As a private person, he requested a hearing, and protested in the name of his brethren against the royal mandate. The right, he said, of the office-bearers of the Church to meet and deliberate touching her interests was derived from her divine head, and was not dependent on the pleasure of the temporal magistrate. His brethren stood up, and by an approving murmur signified their concurrence in what their president had said. Before they retired they fixed a day for their next meeting. It was indeed a very distant day, and when it came neither minister nor elder attended, for even the boldest members shrank from a complete rupture with the civil power. But though there was not open war between the church and the government, they were estranged from each other. 
jealous of each other and afraid of each other. No progress had been made towards a reconciliation when the estates met, and which side the estates would take might well be doubted. But the proceedings of this strange Parliament, in almost every one of its sessions, falsified all the predictions of politicians. It had once been the most unmanageable of senates. It was now the most obsequious. Yet the old men had again met in the old hall. There were all the most noisy agitators of the club, with the exception of Montgomery, who was dying of want and of a broken heart in a garret far from his native land. There was the canting Ross and the perfidious Annandale. There was Sir Patrick Hume, lately created a peer, and henceforth to be called Lord Polworth, but still as eloquent as when his interminable declamations and dissertations ruined the expedition of Argyle. But the whole spirit of the assembly had undergone a change. The members listened with profound respect to the royal letter, and returned an answer in reverential and affectionate language. An extraordinary aid of a hundred and fourteen thousand pounds sterling was granted to the crown. Severe laws were enacted against the Jacobites. The legislation on ecclesiastical matters was as Erastian as William himself could have desired. An act was passed requiring all members of the established church to swear fealty to their majesties and directing the general assembly to receive into communion those Episcopalian ministers not yet deprived, who should declare that they conformed to the Presbyterian doctrine and discipline. Nay, the estates carried adulation so far as to make it their humble request to the king that he would be pleased to confer a Scotch peerage on his favourite Portland. This was indeed their chief petition. They did not ask for redress of a single grievance. They contented themselves with hinting in general terms that there were abuses which required correction, and with referring the King for fuller information to his own ministers, the Lord High Commissioner and the Secretary of State. There was one subject on which it may seem strange that even the most servile of Scottish parliaments should have kept silence. More than a year had elapsed since the massacre of Glencoe, and it might have been expected that the whole assembly, peers, commissioners of shires, commissioners of burghs, would with one voice have demanded a strict investigation into that great crime. It is certain, however, that no motion for investigation was made. The state of the Gaelic clans was indeed taken into consideration. A law was passed for the more effectual suppressing of depredation and outrages beyond the Highland line, and in that law was inserted a special proviso reserving to Mac Callum Moore his hereditary jurisdiction. But it does not appear, either from the public records of the proceedings of the estates, or from those private letters in which Johnston regularly gave Carstairs an account of what had passed, 
that any speaker made any allusion to the fate of Mac Ian and his kinsmen. The only explanation of this extraordinary silence seems to be that the public men who were assembled in the capital of Scotland knew little and cared little about the fate of a thieving tribe of Celts. The injured clan, bowed down by fear of the all-powerful Campbells, and little accustomed to resort to the constituted authorities of the kingdom for protection or redress, presented no petition to the estates. The story of the butchery had been told at coffee-houses, but had been told in different ways. Very recently one or two books, in which the facts were but too truly related, had come forth from the secret presses of London. But those books were not publicly exposed to sale. They bore the name of no responsible author. The Jacobite writers were, as a class, savagely malignant and utterly regardless of truth. Since the Macdonalds did not complain, a prudent man might naturally be unwilling to incur the displeasure of the king, of the ministers, and of the most powerful family in Scotland, by bringing forward an accusation grounded on nothing but reports wandering from mouth to mouth, or pamphlets which no licenser had approved, to which no author had put his name, and which no bookseller ventured to place in his shop window. But whether this be or be not the true solution, it is certain that the estates separated quietly after a session of two months, during which, as far as can now be discovered, the name of Glencoe was not once uttered in the Parliament House. End of section 11 End of chapter 19 of the History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay